Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. This week, Jay's off and I'm joined again with Trey, who's filling in. Trey, how are you doing this week? We're doing really well. How are you doing? Oh, really, really well in a, a really, really busy week. And we'll start, of course, with what was perhaps, I don't know, the most astonishing week of a already tumultuous Trump presidency. Now, I'm going to do my best to recap uh, the highlights, such as they are. So this might take a little while. Uh, so I hope, you, uh, Trey, you'll bear with me and everyone else will. So here we go. On Monday, it was reported that President Trump shared classified information when meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Now, while the president has broad authority to declassify material, there were two main concerns raised about this action. First, that he may not have reviewed or understood the briefing material well enough to realize it was classified. And second, that he may not have realized that by sharing this information, he was potentially revealing a source that didn't want to be revealed. In this case, that source is believed to be Israel. Then on Tuesday, the New York Times reported that in a meeting with then-FBI Director James Comey, President Trump asked Comey to let the Flynn investigation go. And this, combined with Comey's firing shortly thereafter, has led Democrats to claim that the president may be guilty of obstruction of justice, with some saying that this is an impeachable offense. Now, president Trump has denied asking Comey to drop the investigation, though Comey is said to have written up a detailed memo of the conversation, which some say will corroborate the former director's account. On Wednesday, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed Robert Mueller as special counsel to lead the investigation of possible ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. Mueller, who ran the FBI from 2001 to 2013, is widely viewed as an excellent choice both by Republicans and Democrats. And uh, Mueller has been given broad authority to investigate and bring charges if need be, but his decisions can be countermanded by Rosenstein and he can be fired. Unlike an independent counsel, that's a position that was created by Congress in 1978 and that was periodically reviewed up until 1999 when it was allowed to expire due to concerns from both parties that independent counsels were too free of checks on their power. But wait, there's more. On Friday, the New York Times reported that at a meeting with the Russian foreign minister, President Trump said, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. I face great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. Now, White House spokesperson Sean Spicer didn't dispute the account because that's apparently what happened. There are no takers who can, I guess, verify this. They leaked this. But in but he focused instead on the fact that investigation would be continuing without Comey and that the real story here is the leakers who've been talking about these conversations to the media. Now, also on Friday, Rosenstein gave a private briefing to senators at which he confirmed that the FBI's probe was no longer just a counterterrorism investigation, but potentially a criminal one. 
And he also said that he was aware that President Trump had decided to fire Comey before Rosenstein wrote his memo arguing for Comey's dismissal. And that's a memo the White House initially claimed was the reason the president fired Comey. And the latest news, at least the latest I've heard as of Sunday morning when we're recording this, is that Trump's son-in-law and top advisor Jared Kushner has been identified as a person of interest in the FBI investigation, again, according to these anonymous sources. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, that's an awful lot to unpack there. Anything that I missed, uh, Trey? No, I think you got that timeline just about perfect. Okay, well, um, now, before we get into what all this means and what we think about it, uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this week's show, Dollar Shave Club, the smarter choice for a great shave at a great price delivered right to your door. Why go to the store and pay way too much for blades when Dollar Shave Club will bring great blades to you? I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, these are first-class razors. You know, they've got the little strip and all the blades and so forth. I, I don't know how many blades exactly, but there are a bunch of them packed on there, along with a handle that feels really good in my hand. And most important, the shave, it's amazing. No nicks, cuts, bumps, anything like that. And my, felt, my face felt as smooth as, uh, I don't know, silk butter, glass. I'm out of similes here, but you get the idea. Smooth. I'm also a big fan of their Dr. Carver's shave butter, which is way better than anything else I've ever tried. Now, for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only $5. And in your first month box, you get a satisfying weighty, weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of that shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. There are no hidden fees and no commitments, and you can cancel anytime you like, but really, I don't know why you'd want to. To get this special offer, go to dollarshaveclub.com TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com TPG. Okay, on to uh, what we think about all this uh, Trump craziness. Uh, Trey, where do we even start? Where do you want to start? You know, it's difficult because every time this week I thought that we had kind of a handle on what was going on inside the White House, we had this this next step. And I think that might be the first thing to talk about is that the one big issue that emerges from all this is the complete breakdown of the communication process in the White House. Um, and one of the things you hadn't mentioned was the, you know, Spicer trying to kind of dodge the press. Uh, and I think that's, and they're not having the time that's necessary to make these things come uh, uh, out. As a matter of fact, I would argue that one of the biggest lessons of this week is that when you don't loop your press people in on what you're doing, like firing an official, uh, you can turn what might be a minor cut into a much deeper wound in the White House. And oh, I yeah. think that's one of the big things that we see happening this past week. Yeah, I think that, I think that's an excellent point. You know, I think the most one of the most thankless jobs in Washington has to be being in the communications office of the White House. And, and you know, it, it's I think it just all goes back to something I've said again and again, is that when you have somebody who's so very impulsive as the president seems to be, there's no way that even highly competent people can keep up. And so, you know, Trump may blame his staff, but I don't think it's the staff's fault. The dysfunction, the chaos starts 
right from the top. And again and again and again, we've seen a president who seems to be unwilling to control himself, to give his people the time to organize a story. And even when they do, then he'll start talking to someone like Lester Holt or someone like that and, and, and contradict the official White House line. It seems like he just can't help himself. He's so off the cuff. And, you know, I understand that a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because they said, well, we're tired of politicians talking like politicians and being so cautious and so forth. But there's a reason they're like that. Message discipline is hugely important. And I think we're seeing why right here. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's bigly important. I think Trump would say, oh, well, no, maybe not. He wouldn't say. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I think the big issue, one of the big stories that I saw was the fact that Kami himself is finding out about his own firing from a television that is on, uh, not from an official channel. And that's the same kind of uh, last minute warning that Spicer has. So even if you want to be the president that goes off message, right, so if you want to be that kind of different type of talking, that Twitter president, uh, you still have to offer the kind of timeline. I mean, you can't, you can't expect people to have the same response time as you can put out on Twitter. And I think that, the, I really think that, that even more so than chaos, I think it's this inability to give people the time to get their jobs done uh, that has made things uh, just incredibly difficult for the White House communications. As a matter of fact, it looks like Spicer may, may or may not continue to be a long-term, uh, be, be at the White House long-term. Yeah. You know, and you know, I think it goes even broader than that, because it, if you think about the fact that, number one, the Trump uh, administration has been very slow to staff up in a lot of critical areas. Uh, and number two, I think potential, you know, potential White House staffers, especially higher level people, are going to be asking themselves, is this a place that I want to work? It seems like the wheels are falling off the organization, and it seems like the president doesn't have a problem blaming everyone but himself. Uh, you know, he seems to want a lot of loyalty, but I don't know how much loyalty he's willing to necessarily give to people. And this is the kind of atmosphere where I think a lot of people are going to say, um, thanks, but no thanks. And, and you know, that that's a real problem because the president needs to delegate almost everything just because the job's too big. And if the best people aren't willing to work in those positions, things are not going to, things are not going to run smoothly. Well, one of the things that listeners might be interested in is one we talked a couple of weeks ago about presidential power. And one of the key elements of presidential power is getting the, the deep institutional structure of the, uh, of the bureaucracy to do the things you want it to do, you, to, to move that giant ship of state. And the more you have this, the less likely it is that you're going to be an effective convincer for those inside your own branch to get things done. I think it weakens his own power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think another aspect of this, of course, is all the leak leaking. And I, the Spicer and Trump are right that there are it, this, this White House is incredibly leaky. But I, and, you know, conservatives will say, well, that's because Trump is taking on the so-called deep state and they're, they're pushing back and so forth. But, you know, I think given how how rashly the president acts, you can't help but expect this. You know, I, I, when Comey was fired, I said, now watch, the leaks are going to come hard and fast because people don't appreciate being treated like that. And every time he pushes back so aggressively, he's just asking for more leaks. This isn't going to stop. And this, you know, becomes a pattern of dysfunction as people scramble to get out or to leak things. And, you know, there are some people who are suggesting if you want to get the president's attention, 
Don't bother trying to write a memo, which he won't read. The best way to get the president's attention is to leak some big thing and have it appear on Fox and Friends where the president will actually listen. And if that's the case, that's that's an incredible breakdown of communication. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the right has definitely latched on to the leaking as being the story uh, as a way, I think, of attempting to downplay some of the more important things coming out of the White House. But I would argue, if you take a look at any institution, if you look at any structure, when you see people going around the normal communication chains, that is generally an indication that there's a problem with the normal communication trains. And that doesn't just apply to the White House, but it especially applies to the White House. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. So as we continue to see leaks coming out, what this means is, is that People are not being heard or they don't feel like they're being heard uh, in the White House. And so this is the way that they're trying to be have a message. Yeah. You know, and if I'm a as a as someone who's left of center, this actually pleases me in a sense. I mean, because uh, the, the president's own sort of incompetence in this sense is really hampering uh, a conservative agenda. If I'm a conservative, this is driving me nuts because there are so many policy things that potentially could be accomplished. But it seems like the president is, you know, I think a lot of conservatives sort of crossed their fingers and said, well, maybe when he's elected, he'll become a more serious person. He'll be willing to, I mean, Donald Trump's never going to be a policy wonk, but maybe he'll seriously consider some things. He'll focus a little bit more. There's no indication whatsoever that that's happened. And if you're a conservative, that's disastrous for your agenda, I think. Yeah. And, and when you're the president and you're attempting to get things done, you know, there's only so much political air. And so if you have to use all of your air, if you've got to use all your political capital on these daily uh, missteps, then you can't be focusing on, let's see, what were we talking about a few weeks ago? Were you guys, were you and Jay talking about, what about, I don't know, the budget? I mean, where, where, have, where has been the inch space? Where has been the columns? Well, that's nowhere because there's no space for that. Um, and that's going to make that really challenging if you're a Republican in Congress to get anything else done. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I, let's let, kind of change up a little bit and talk a little bit about the investigation itself. And one thing that some people might not be aware of is that uh, uh, Bob Mueller is a very good friend of, uh, of Comey. Uh, and so, you know, you could sort of look at this and say, well, maybe it would have been better for the president to keep Comey in because, you know, he was seen by some people at least as not playing fair. Everyone thinks that Mueller is, you know, totally above board. They changed the rules about FBI directors to keep him in a few extra years years. This is a guy you can't really do much better in terms of credibility. And if I'm Trump, I'd actually prefer Comey investigating my campaign to, to, to Mueller, at least if I think that my campaign's guilty uh, of, of, you know, of anything. And so I think, you know, in terms of what we can expect from this investigation, my sense is, is it's going to be maybe not even months, maybe even years. These investigations typically take a long time and, you know, you can spin this and say, well, maybe that's a good thing because then the Trump administration or Republicans will be able to focus on something else. But to me, that's assuming there are no leaks in this. And I think we've pretty much well established that if big stuff comes out, someone's going to be leaking this. And so I don't see this going away really at all. I, what, what do you think, Trey? 
No, I mean, I think that this is bad news if you're Trump. I think it's really bad news if you want to see a conservative agenda come forward, because whether there is anything there or not, uh, this is going to come back into the news cycle repeatedly, as you've noted, probably for years now, uh, as we have a thorough investigation. And if at the end of the day, as one would hope, uh, there is no uh, collusion or anything taking place. You now have two years where this is a drip, drip story, uh, just taking the taking your ability to get things done away. Uh, so I best case scenario, this, again, harms the ability of conservatives to advance their agenda. Worst case scenario, it's a difficult to predict. Yeah. And, you know, I think my ultimate prediction on this, and I'll go out on a limb, is after a long time, maybe it will be years, I don't know, but a ton of leaks. I think there's a good chance that that the investigation will find some illegal activity, but I think it's going to be nothing directly involving the president. So I think that will be enough to cripple his presidency. I expect this to you know, be a big thing leading right up until the 2018 elections, uh, but I don't think this is going to force Trump out, though. I have this funny sense that if Democrats take the House in 2018, they are going to vote uh, to impeach the president, which only takes a majority in the House. And and that worked pretty disastrously for Republicans when they did that for President Clinton. I think that would be a bad idea, but I sort of can see that happening. Uh, what, do, what do you think? It, well, yeah, the, the, the Democrats have to be really careful here. The left, I think, is way overreaching on not a whole lot. I mean, we have an investigation going on, and we already have Democratic senators calling for impeachment. And while that might appeal to their base right now, I don't think that's a long-term tenable solution. Uh, and if if the left, in major ways, and Democrats specifically, make this the, the makes this their hill, I don't think they're going to live. As you well point out, impeaching presidents generally doesn't go well, uh, and <laughs> And being the anti, I mean, just ask the Republicans, being the anti-Trump party is not going to work out any better than being the anti-Obama party was. Uh, it may help you in the short term, but it's not going to help you get anything done in the long term, which is what's going to keep you in office. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm also concerned about if that I don't think President Trump will be forced from office. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, take a look at his approval ratings. They're you know hovering slightly below 40 percent even. But if you break that down a little bit, the people who supported President Trump in the first place, they're they're sticking with him. And if they feel that their guy is essentially removed from office or, or crippled because the media uh, combined with the deep state, the intelligence community is out to get him. I mean, if you think you see nasty polarization now, what's that going to do going forward? I don't know, but it's but it's nothing good, certainly. And Democrats have to remember, I mean, Congress has traditionally polled in the teens in the modern era. Uh, so, I mean, if you want to have a head to head with the president, you oftentimes have an institutional uphill battle. So even a historically low president like Trump is still way out polling Congress as an institution. And you're not doing a one off. So it's not as if you, an individual congressperson, are fighting Trump. It's the institution of Congress that is. So, you know, if you're if your approval rating is hovering at 17 percent, even a 40 percent uh, approval rating from Trump dwarfs you. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and, and and I think it just it. Well. It's certainly not a, not a good situation, no matter no matter no matter how you look at it. And uh, I, you know, we'll we'll 
follow up on this. Obviously, I think it's going to be a big story for a long time. But uh, anything else before we move on, Trey? No, I think we hit that one. Okay, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, before we do move on, we, we'd like to thank our new supporter this week, Jennifer from Green Bay, Wisconsin, who became a monthly sustaining supporter through Patreon. Jennifer writes, I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time, although I would probably be described as a feminazi tree-hugging tree hugging granola libtard in certain circles. I do appreciate Jay's comments on the issues of the day and the opportunity to consider events from a different perspective than my own. I give my contribution in hopes that you continue your efforts to bring rational discussion to an increasingly hysterical news environment. Keep it up. Now, Jennifer added a postscript related to a question of hers regarding Republicans and reproductive rights that we featured last week, and I felt like I should really read it. Here it goes. Mike, for the love of God, just say it. Labia. I really felt that, yeah, that was an important part of my comments on personal responsibility. Yeah, you know, I thought it was a great comment. And, she, and you edited it out. She said, I'll give you a pass on hoo-ha, but I'm pretty sure you can say labia if you try. So there you go, Jennifer. I did it. Okay. Um, now, uh, if you'd like to help us keep the show going, you can do what Jennifer did last week. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links you'll see there. Every donation helps. We greatly appreciate it, no matter what the amount is. And recurring monthly donations, which you can set up through Patreon, they're particularly helpful because then they let us know what to expect financially as we move forward with the show. Okay. Um, well, you know, in the midst of all this White House, White, House, White House chaos, I can say it, the chaos king has left the country. On Friday, Donald Trump, no fan of international travel, embarked on his first foreign trip as president. He starts out in Saudi Arabia, where he is right now. Then he moves on to Israel, Italy, Vatican City, where he'll meet with the Pope, Brussels for meetings with NATO leaders and EU officials, and finally, Sicily for talks with the G7 countries, which aside from the United States include Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United Kingdom. It's a nine-day whirlwind tour where, as many have noted, the president will be meeting, well, sorry, will be visiting the homelands of all three Abrahamic religious faiths, Ju Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, as well as trying to reassure key European allies that the United States stands with them, despite Trump's campaign rhetoric that sometimes suggested maybe otherwise. And now we'll certainly be talking about the trip next week when it concludes, but for now, we can talk about at least the first leg of it. And so, Trey, uh, what do you think? What are your expectations? And I don't know, why do you think the president's people chose these particular countries? I, obviously, this was chosen before we had the, this week's craziness emerge. And I think the goal was to try to shift the attention um, from domestic to international policy, where presidents are obviously much stronger. And it's a chance for Trump to, to look a little bit more poised. Uh, you know, when you're going overseas, these are highly um, regulated, organized performances. Uh, there's a, it's a dance. And this was, I think, a chance for Trump to show off that, yeah, I, I have these steps and I can do this. Uh, so I think at the outset, you know, that first messaging battle is probably lost. Um, but to the extent that as we move into this week, you know, there's still the hope that this can become the more dominant frame and he can move away from the Russia ties. Although, you know, it's going to be hard to do that with a NATO summit. Um, so I want to kind of see how that messaging uh, plays out. But I, I think that was really one of the major goals. 
Uh, plus, you know, he needs to get out of the country. Uh, he's he was here the longest of any president. Yeah, I mean, he it's been quite a while. And then, like I said, even when he even before his presidency, he does not really like traveling a whole lot. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of I definitely agree with you uh, in terms of why these countries and why this trip. And, and once you start talking about the, the Middle East and sort of the, the alliances and relationships, things get really complicated, really messy, uh, really quick. And, um, you know, for instance, Saudi Arabia, they're our biggest ally in the region outside of Israel. They were not big fans of President Obama. There's a reason why they're giving President Trump such a lavish welcome because, you know, President Obama, they did not like the fact that he was willing to talk to Iran and have that nuclear deal. And because Iran is really Saudi Arabia's biggest competitor for hegemony in that region. Right. And I think Obama's bet was that sanctions would inevitably fail in Iran and that we would need to kind of bring them in to try to uh, make them a little less bellicose and so they could become less of a regional threat. Now, obviously, the Saudis disagree with that. And, and of course, they disagree very strongly. There's that, that proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran in, in Yemen. Uh, and, you know, even prior to that, I think the hope of President Bush was that we would be able to create a strong and democratic Iraq, which would be kind of a counterweight both to the, that kind of repressive regime in Iran and even, you know, Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is certainly no bastion of democracy and human rights, right? So, you know, and then we bring in the Syria conflict and Russia gets into all this, and then everyone in the region pretty much hates Israel and, uh, and Egypt comes in. And before you know it, there's nothing you can do in the Middle East that doesn't really anger someone else. Like, for instance, uh, it was just recently announced that $110 billion weapons uh, sales agreement to Saudi Arabia, you know, and that's certainly not something that, uh, that Israel is going to be a huge fan of. And Saudi Arabia didn't get everything they wanted in that. And so there's really nothing you can do in that region without making some enemies, right? Yeah. I mean, this has been in intellectual circles, academic circles, the, the, the Rubik's cube that I don't think anybody solved and it very well might be that there isn't a, a solve for it. And you're right. You know, Saudi Arabia and president Obama had some serious kinds of issues. One of the issues was that in some ways, um, if, if Obama had a pretty big downfall, it could sometimes be, he was the lecturer. Uh, and in his first trip to Saudi Arabia, you know, he kind of becomes the Muslim lecturer, this kind of idea, well, I, well here's, here's Islam, um, which is kind of a bizarre sell when you're coming from the United States. Uh, and so I think in a lot of ways, Obama did have a troubled relationship, both because of what you've noted, uh, what he did with Iran, and also just because of the rhetoric that he used as he moved through Saudi Arabia. And so I'm sure it, it's clear um, that there's a hope that there's a reset for that with Trump. And I think that Trump himself is trying to have a reset. I mean, if you look around today, uh, in the last couple of days at the coverage of uh, Trump as he makes it to Saudi Arabia, you know, the huge cry from the right is, you know, Dr uh, you know Drudge, Drudge's uh, headline was, you know, great again, unlike Obama, Trump doesn't bow. Uh, so it's again this chance for Trump to kind of come in and have this unique uh, view. Um, you know, uh, Melania Trump is getting played up for not having a headscarf. So I think there's a lot of symbolic things going on here, too, besides, as you're noting, the very deep, entrenched and difficult political arrangements that is the Middle East.
Yeah, and, and you know, there, there's definitely that disconnect sometimes between the symbolism and what's really going on. And, you know, the Trump administration and Donald Trump, for all he railed against the Iran nuclear agreement, all the signs of that, he's not going to pull us out of that. And so, again, there's that there's that symbolic element and then what's really going on. And a lot of, I, I think so far, a lot of President Trump's foreign policy has been pretty standard Republican type foreign policy, really, even though during his campaign, he suggested something very different. And I feel the same way about a lot of his economic policy, too. He was talking a big game about changing up a lot of things. But when push has come to shove, I don't really see a whole lot of differences. Well, and again, I don't think this should be a big surprise, given that he's not the policy guy. I mean, it just seems unlikely uh, that the person who's not really interested in that nitty gritty is going to come in and in a very difficult, very institutionalized environment, try to make a lot of changes. Uh, I think a lot of that was just wishful thinking on some people's part. Uh, presidents just generally, they're not going to make radical changes from the presidents who come before. They're going to they're going to make their own statement, but it's going to be smaller. Definitely. Well, you know, and there is one area, though, kind of shifting gears a little bit here in which Donald Trump has definitely been different from a run of the mill Republican, and, and that's trade. And, you know, there was one story that kind of was lost in the shuffle of all the craziness this week, and that's the Trump administration giving Congress official notice that it plans to renegotiate the NAFTA agreement. And, you know, Trump had earlier suggested, right, that he had he was considering withdrawing from NAFTA completely, but then he received calls both from the president of Mexico, prime minister of Canada, and they said, hey, will you renegotiate? And he said, okay, we can have talks. Uh, and, and I think, you know, President Trump has made his feelings about NAFTA abundantly clear, right? He called it the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly the worst in this country. Uh, and now this letter that he sent to Congress, it starts the clock on a 90-day waiting period after which negotiations between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico can begin. And the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer said that the goal is going to be to update NAFTA, which is 23 years old, uh, and focus on issues like digital trade, intellectual property, environmental standards, that sort of thing. So what, what do you make of this trade? Do you think NAFTA should be renegotiated? And what, if anything, do you think might come out of these uh, renegotiation talks? Well, I think you're right. I think this is the big story that's going untalked about this week. Uh, and that's because NAFTA, anytime you're using an acronym and then you're talking about trade policy, that's not exactly cover one sexy <laughs> for any newspaper. Um, and I, but I think this really is the big deal. And it marks a pretty significant reversal uh, in a relatively now longstanding American policy towards free trade. Uh, and I, one of the things to think about is, you know, NAFTA is signed under Clinton on January 1st in 1994, but he's actually signing what H.W. Uh, Bush had negotiated prior to that in 1992 and three. Uh, so you get this kind of really fascinating left-right consensus on the idea that we want uh, free trade. And if the last election was any indication of something that the left and the right seem to have coalesced on, you don't have to look any further than Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump to see that free trade is is uh, is no longer in vogue, and that's a really that's a huge that's a huge change. It wasn't that many years ago uh, that scholars were writing that at this point the option of turning back on trade is impossible. 
uh, according to Dr. John Rothgeb, a former, uh, former professor of mine. Um, and now here we are making a, a decision, well, what can we do? And I think that's fascinating. And, but I think we also have to keep in mind what's possible and what's not possible. So if, if NAFTA completely went away, so if Trump can wave a magic wand and NAFTA ended, what would end up happening is we would revert to the WTO rules of 1995, um, because that's our base level agreement with any other uh, WTO countries. So it's not like they can do anything they want. There's kind of a base level of uh, connection that these countries are going to have because we're all WTO members. Uh, but I think that's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, yeah, and you're right about the the weird coalitions. That's that's I think a really important point. There's there's still I think this elite consensus on both the right and the left that free trade is a good thing. But then you look and the the political alignment's fascinating outside of that kind of elite consensus once you get further to the right or to the left. Uh, and you know, for instance, you have Nancy Pelosi. Uh, excoriating President Trump for not going far enough on this sort of thing. And so this is where liberal Democrats are going to be the people most likely to agree with the president on that, which is just obviously bizarre, I think. And and I think the reason why is you need to consider, well, how how good or bad has NAFTA been? I certainly think it's absolutely wrong to say that it's the worst trade trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but it's been a mixed bag. You know, it hasn't been good for manufacturing. There's no question about that, but it has been good for other sectors like agriculture, energy, and so forth. And that's according to the U.S. trade representative. So whether NAFTA has been a good thing or a bad thing, it sort of depends on where you look. Well, and I would argue that it's a difficult thing to get a handle on. When you take a look at economic theorists on this, one of NAFTA comes into the fact at the same time you have some major other global shifts occurring, uh, right? So it's easy to say that NAFTA harmed, um, as you were saying, manufacturing. But this is the same era that the internet was taking off and the ability to buy and sell things and move things were changing in huge ways. So it can be difficult to tease out specifically how much of that is the NAFTA effect? So I'm not arguing that none of it is, but how much of it was the NAFTA effect and how much of it were these other global things going into effect at the same time? Uh, and, yeah. I, and that's difficult to do. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's an excellent point. I'm really glad you made that because I think what a lot of people sometimes forget to, to appreciate fully is how China wasn't really a player uh, until kind of the 90s and through this time when all of a sudden all this manufacturing in China and all these jobs, these low-wage jobs sort of came onto the scene. And that shook things up in a really fundamental way that, that I think we're still trying to come, to come to grips with and be able to understand fully. Oh, yeah. I mean, think, if you think back to the 90s, I mean, nobody produced computer components in China. And now today, I defy you to find a laptop, a phone, or a computer that doesn't have its major functions made in China. And you know, obviously, that's not a NAFTA effect. Um, so we have these big, fascinating changes. And so what you kind of have to do is maybe take a look at some other cases and say, well, how did these kinds of nationalist, isolationist policies work elsewhere? Um, and I would suggest that you know we would want to take a look at India and their import substitution policies, uh, which on the whole, were hugely devastating to that country. Um, you know, because when they leave, so they're a British colony, uh, and when they break off from Great Britain, they want to kind of get rid of free trade, and so they moved to what we call import substitution, which is more or less kind of what both uh, Trump 
and uh, Bernie Sanders were arguing for. And those sets of policies were not successful. And so I would argue that while we can have arguments about, you know, who helped, who's helped and hurt by NAFTA, that on the whole, these kinds of additional trade barriers through tariffs have generally been demonstrated to be negatives to economies. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, even though economists now, many economists now admit that they perhaps overestimated the benefits or underestimated some of the problems with opening up trade, still it's a lot better free trade, other things being equal is a lot better for all involved than uh, uh, sort of a, a system where there are more trade barriers. And there's just a pretty strong consensus on that, you know, and that's bipartisan for the most part. So, yeah. And I think you're right. I think that especially in our discipline in political science, I think we underestimated some of the effects that would have on certain portions of the population. Um, Cause we, you knew, you knew there was going to be short-term pain for certain people, but I think, the duration of those harms uh, probably lasted longer than many of us would have predicted, uh, even if the, again, and it's always hard to tell somebody, say, look, well, you're much better off overall, you know, even if the coal town <laughs> goes belly up, yeah. uh, but it's hard to tell the coal town that. Yeah, definitely. And I think during that time, things like uh, retraining programs and whatnot were very much oversold and people were just kind of crossing their fingers and hoping. And a lot of that ended up not, you know, playing out as successfully as we would have liked, certainly. So, but, you know, I think what's going to happen here is sure there's going to be a renegotiation, but remember renegotiation involves all parties. And so uh, Canada and Mexico are going to want certain concessions as well. And so it's not, they're just not going to say, Oh, well, sure. Whatever you want to do, president Trump. So I see coming out of this a slightly different agreement, but I do not see NAFTA going away. There's just going to be way too much pressure to keep it in place because I do think that overall it has been for the country a net positive. And so I think we'll see a slight change, but we're not going to see the sort of wholesale changes that Donald Trump was talking about during his campaign. Uh, well, well, no, I mean, and the wholesale changes he, were talk he was talking about were always impossible again because of the WTO. I mean, there's this kind of, it's, it's not as if you can go from free trade to punitive uh, tariffs on Mexico, uh, because that's still not going to be allowed. So I, I totally agree. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get to what we've been reading and listener mail, I've got some news for everyone. We are having a contest here on the show where the winner chosen at random will get a $15 Amazon gift card. So here's how it works. First, there are three ways you can enter. Number one, follow us on Twitter. Number two, rate and review the show on iTunes, and third, share or retweet our new show posts on Facebook or Twitter and for either the Sunday or Wednesday show, and include a few words when you share a retweet about why you think your friends and followers should check us out. Now, you can do all of these things, and each one will count as a separate entry for our drawing. So to enter, do one of those three things or all of them. Take a screenshot of your Twitter follow, iTunes review, or share or retweet of our new show posts and email it to us at mail at politicsguys.com. The contest starts at noon on Sunday, May 21st, that's today, and will go until noon on Saturday, June 3rd. 
We'll consider all follows, reviews, shares, and retweets done and emailed to us during that time period. Then we'll do the drawing on the air during our Sunday, June 4th show. Now, this is a new thing for us. Uh, the marketing guy at Audio Boom says it's something we should definitely try, and yeah, I'm willing to give it a shot and see how it goes. And we're really looking forward to seeing all of your follows, reviews, shares, and retweets in the next few weeks. Thanks and good luck. Okay. Uh, on to, well, let's do listener mail before we're reading, if that's okay with you, Trey. That sounds perfect. Okay, well, we have uh, we have two pieces of listener mail. One was specifically for Jay, so we'll hold off on that for next week. But this other is from AJ from Cleveland, Ohio, my hometown, who wrote in recently with some questions about Republicans and healthcare. His email reads, in part, I understand that part of the conservative argument is that entitlements disincentivize personal responsibility and reduce many people's motivations to work hard. Specifically in healthcare, the conservatives I've talked to say that Medicaid disincentivizes lower-income individuals from joining the workforce and getting vital health coverage from an employer. But wouldn't it be a bigger problem if people were unable to ever join the workforce at all because they weren't able to get the care they need to become physically capable of holding a job? People are living longer, and with innovation in medical research, we're able to manage a greater number of chronic illnesses. So wouldn't the government providing guaranteed health care ensure that we don't lose too many potential workers to federal disability and, sorry for being dramatic, death? Also, my understanding is the conservative position is that it is not the government's place to ensure that everyone has access to health care, that access to health care is simply not a right that Americans are entitled to. If that is true, then wouldn't any Republican health care bill be required to kick people off of Medicaid and or Medicare in order to be conservative? Perhaps I'm wrong, but it seems like popular opinion has shifted to people believing that they are entitled to health care when they get sick. From my admittedly liberal perspective, it seems that any conservative health care legislation would result in fewer people being guaranteed health insurance, a result that Americans clearly don't want to see happen. This seems like a fundamental flaw in any Republican health care argument. They simply do not believe government should guarantee people health care, so any Republican plan should be dismissed outright. Okay, so there are at least a couple things going on there. And Trey, since you are our, our resident libertarian slash right-of-center person, uh, I'll let you take the lead on this with, with whichever part of uh, AJ's argument that you want to uh, address. Well, that, that's actually a really good question. It's a complex one. So let, maybe let's hit a couple of parts of that at once. Um, one is this argument about what the state is due people, right? So what are rights and what are not rights? And is it health care a right? Uh, and I think for those of us on the right, those of us in the conservative libertarian group, what we're going to argue is that no matter what you have, you have to distribute it in some way. Right. So you, you don't have an unlimited amount of health care in the world. So even if you have the state provide health care for people, there has to be a mechanism by which it is going to be divvied out to people uh, because it's not unlimited. It is a scarce resource like any resource. Uh, and so what us on the right are going to argue is that there are better mechanisms for the distribution of that scarce resource than the state, right? And that we're gonna make an argument here that the state will not dole it out either effectively uh, or efficiently. And again, I'm, I'm speaking for a lot of different positions, right? So I'm kind of trying to be very general here, but that I think at its heart is gonna be 
kind of the response to one part of the question. Yeah, I, you know, I think, and, and there's actually, I think, a lot of agreement here, that at least that I have, in that other things being equal, I think that markets tend to distribute scarce resources more efficiently uh, than the state does. But, but again, that's all other things being equal. And I, I've talked about this before in the past. I think in certain ways, healthcare is different from, you know, uh, widgets or basketballs or PCs or, you know, Macs or something like that. And, and so, you know, it's, it's vital in certain ways. People have a harder time being rational consumers of it, getting good information. And so I think that the, the state certainly has a role in regulating healthcare, maybe more than certain other goods. Right. And I mean, I think, and that's a point where we can begin to have some, uh, some debate and find some common ground, but I, I think, I think you're right. But the, the prop, I think his questions overall tenor was, well, how can anyone in a nice way, you know, how can anyone not be for everybody having healthcare? And I guess what my friends on the right are going to say is, well, be careful. It is easy to assume that if the state provides it, you're suddenly going to have everybody having unlimited access to healthcare, and that simply can't be the case because it is a limited distributed good. So even if you look at Canada or the United Kingdom, and I'm not going to take a, uh, a hysterical view of those countries, right? They can't give everyone unlimited amounts of healthcare, uh, right? And there is a process by which this occurs. And so I think in the United States, it can be easy sometimes to see that other point of view and saying, well, wait a second, my point of view, everybody gets healthcare. And in your mind, you might be thinking, well, everybody's going to get unlimited healthcare. And that's, that's just not a possibility. So you got to be careful when you're making those kinds of assumptions. Now, now what do you think about the the second part of, uh, I think, what, what AJ is saying, that idea of a, of a right. You know, certainly for most goods, people would not say that people, that Americans or anyone has a right to, say, uh, an iPhone or, you know, or, or any kind of consumer good, right? But a lot of people do seem to believe that there is a fundamental right to healthcare. And if, if one agrees with that position, then it's a real problem that you know, millions of people do not have access to kind of any kind of you know decent healthcare. What do you think about that? Is there is that a fundamental right? Would you say? You know, this is a difficult question. I don't think AJ is going to love my response on it, but I'm going to argue that it's not, <laughs> um, and it's not because I'm a heartless individual uh, who doesn't want people to be healthy. Um, but I think it comes from an understanding that a right in a kind of a technical sense, is something that you have access to. Uh, it's not something that has to be provided to you. In this way, really, a healthcare right would be more like a civil right than it would be what we're kind of talking about, at, uh, or a civil liberty, I might add, as opposed to a civil liberty. Uh, because there's no way for a state to guarantee that everyone is going to have an unlimited amount of health care. So, I mean, it might be a good rhetoric point. I mean, I can understand that. But I think as you tease it away, it becomes a little nonsensical to say that a state is required to provide everyone in health with health insurance or health care in the sense that that can't happen. Yeah. And, you know, there's one way I definitely agree with you on this when you said that there's a there's no fundamental right to an unlimited amount of health care. And I absolutely agree with that. And, and, but I would, uh, being someone from the left, my argument's a little bit different. I would say is, while there certainly is no right to unlimited all the health care you want whenever you want it, I do tend to agree that there was a fundamental right to a basic 
level of healthcare, just like I believe there's a fundamental right to a basic level of education. And, and government has decided that, yes, there is that right to a basic level of education, you know, K through 12 level, and government will, in fact, provide that. I see healthcare as being a similar thing, but I also can appreciate the conservative argument saying that, well, you know what, that's a really slippery slope. Where do we draw the line? And that's not, you know, that's not an easy question to answer. And so I also think it's important to point out that conservatives like you, like Jay would argue as well, who don't agree with that are not hoping that people die or not being heartless or evil. They're just kind of coming at this from a, a different perspective, but it's certainly not one of not caring about poor people or people who don't have access to health care. I think it's important to point out. It, exactly. I mean, the argument for us is going to be that other mechanisms will give people the best health care that they can have in these circumstances, right? And I think that's something we have to be, be cognizant of. Another part of AJ's question, though, was he was asking about this idea of if you're if you get something like this, if you get a minimum income or you get uh, health care, which is specific, um, you know, how is that a bad thing? Right. Because that's kind of the first part of his question. And to that, AJ, I would what I would argue is, is that I am a unique libertarian is that I would actually be open to things like uh, getting rid of many social services in favor of a universal guaranteed uh, minimum income. Um, and there'd be other libertarians in that in that boat with me. But in in broad strokes, the argument about this, you know, if you're going to get something, you're somehow going to be lazy. I, I think that's a, a slight normative uh, push. But rather, the issue becomes it becomes economically. It doesn't always make sense. If I have enough to not want to do anything, then the argument is, is that, well, I would rather live at a lower standard of level rather than be productive member of society and attain, attain more. Um, and I, but I think he makes a, a fine critique on that argument that, well, if there's not a minimum that you might be scared into never moving up, um, again, that, I, that's again comes from my bias of being okay with a basic minimum income. Uh, but I do understand when you start to have services, AJ, the question becomes, if you get kind of the, if you get platinum service for free, uh, why would you want to do anything, I think is more or less the yeah. argument. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I agree with you there. I think so much comes down to uh, sort of nuts and bolts of, of policy design, program design. And so you can certainly create, you can create the uh, government programs that do disincentivize work productivity, but you can also create programs that actually make it easier for people to go out and be entrepreneurs and create and kind of give them help in doing that. And so much comes down to those sort of, those sort of uh, policy details. And I think I, I'll finish on this. I'll say that those, we are very on the right, especially as a libertarian, we're going to be very skeptical that it's going to be as easy as you might imagine to create social policies with no side effects. So for example, um, you know, you take a look at the housing crisis a few years ago, and those of us in the libertarian conservative circle are gonna say, see, look, um, by subsidizing people's purchasing houses, you had all of these other kinds of negative effects you weren't thinking about. Because in social science, it is very difficult to say, well, if I just, I can just affect this one variable and nothing else. And we're gonna be very skeptical of that. 
uh, as a man, and I think rightfully so. Yeah, yeah, amen. I mean, this is where I I kind of break from some of my some of my friends on the left. I agree, you know, very much with that. You know, uh, you use the example of housing policy nowadays. Uh, certainly, there's an argument to be made that subsidizing uh, college tuition is what's caused, at least been in part, the cause of massive increases in in cost in that area and the student debt crisis and so forth. And I think there's something to that as well. So, you know, I'm not uh, a doctrinaire liberal on that. I think that's probably because both you and I as social scientists appreciate how complex these things are and how many moving parts and how there are always unintended consequences. Yes. And and when you accept that, you can sometimes want to say, well, wait, is the no policy approach better than a policy approach with potentially unknown negatives. Absolutely. It can certainly at least make you much more, being being a social scientist can make you much more of an incrementalist at the very least. <laughs> down, so. Yes, agreed. Deeply agreed. All right. Uh, moving on. It's time for what we're reading, where we step back from the crazed pace of the news cycle, definitely this week, and talk about the more in-depth, thoughtful things that we're reading, listening to, or watching. All right. Uh, Trey, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so I've got a couple of things I've been reading. One I just got done with uh, about a week ago, and then the other one I've been reading for a while, but I'm not finished with. So I'll start. I'm always reading a biography, Mike. Um, I, I'm a presidential scholar, so I love that. So right now I've actually dipped back in history, and I've been reading. If you haven't done it before, it's a great read. Ralph Ketchum's James Madison's classic biography. Um, it's a really fascinating. It's a big, deep book. It's going to take you some time to get through. Um, the one that I just got finished with that it's an e much easier read. Uh, I love reading about tech stuff. Um, it's Brad Stone's The Everything Store, which is really kind of a, a biography of uh, Jeff Bezos um, and the age of Amazon. And that's a really fascinating read. Uh, and it actually kind of made me question, you know, what how much I do with Amazon. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I do an awful lot with them too. So those sound like two really good recommendations. I, I had not, I have not read the Madison uh, biography, so I'm definitely going to put that on my list for sure because I'm a big biography fan as well. Um, I also have two recommendations this week. The first is an interview on NPR's Morning Edition this week with Republican Senator Ben Sass in Nebraska. You know, he's a young guy, 45, which is young for a senator, and. He's got the sort of buzz, the sort of energy around him that reminds me a lot of another young senator a while back. I'm sure you know who I mean, Trey, Barack Obama. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you, did you get that feel? Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, but Sass has a new book out called The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming of Age Crisis and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. And uh, he talks a lot about the book in the interview, and it's just under seven minutes long. I thought it was well worth my time. And uh, we'll have a link to it on the website. And the link also takes you to a transcript of the interview highlights uh, as well. So uh, that's my first recommendation. My second is an email newsletter, and it's called The Lighthouse. It's from uh, American Greatness. Now, American Greatness is a website uh, organization, I guess, that's trying to provide sort of the intellectual underpinnings for what some people call Trumpism. Now, I don't actually think that Trump is a Trumpist. Uh, that's just because I don't believe he has any sort of well-considered worldview or ideology, but there are a lot of smart people writing for American Greatness, and they're trying to explain and justify Trump in terms of this Trumpism. Now, I'm, I'm sort of tempted to call it Breitbart for smarter people, but that would probably be unfair a little bit. Um, 
But anyway, The Lighthouse, it's really hard for me to read because I disagree oftentimes really, really strongly with almost all of it. But that's exactly why I subscribe to the newsletter so that on a regular basis, I'd be forced to essentially either engage with their ideas or delete the email, which to me would be kind of admitting defeat, at, at least in terms of my willingness to challenge my own, worldview, my own worldview. So those are my two recommendations, that interview and The Lighthouse. Okay. It's a fascinating second one. Oh, yeah. You, you know, I, I'm always trying to find ways to, it's so easy for me to get into my own little silo on that. And, you know, I think there's one point where some of the, the, the critics of the media and the Trump fans have a good point. The media does pound on him an awful lot. And if all you read was Vox and the New York Times and, and, and you know, and, and the Atlantic and so forth, you would get, I think, such a skewed and incomplete view of the world. And so it's hard for me to seek out these things because they go against my world worldview, but I think it's just so very important. I think that's a great way to, to kind of expose myself to that stuff. So there you go. All right. Well, wow, this was a, this was a, a packed episode and uh, that is it for this one. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Trey, for subbing in for Jay this week. It's wonderful to be here again. And of course, you know, if you've got a question, a comment, a correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you know how to reach us, mail at politicsguys.com. Also, our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. We really appreciate our great listeners who have generously supported this show through their donations. If you'd like to join them, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website, politicsguys.com. And if money's tight or you're already a financial supporter, please consider hitting that share icon on your podcast app to pass this episode along to your friends, your followers, and leaving ratings and reviews on your app, sharing and retweeting new show posts and tweets. That helps a lot too. And finally, thanks to today's sponsor, Dollar Shave Club, The Smarter Choice. For a limited time, new members can get their first month of the Executive Razor for cartridges and a tube of their Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only five bucks with free shipping. You can only get this offer by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. All right, well, we'll be back with a new interview this Wednesday and our weekly analysis of the news on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.